Eating disorders thrive in secrecy and shame. It's when we create a safe space for honest conversation that we'll find the opportunity for healing. Hi there, I'm Dr. Karen Nelson, licensed clinical psychologist at Melrose Center, welcoming you to Melrose Heals, a conversation about eating disorders, a podcast designed to explore, discuss, and understand eating disorders and mental health. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Emily Wacker, licensed clinical therapist here at Melrose. Emily and I will talk about her research and the idea of feminist protective factors. These protective factors can specifically help women who may be struggling with disordered eating or those who've been diagnosed with an eating disorder. Now, before I begin, I invite you to take a deep breath and join me in this space. Well, welcome to the podcast, Emily. I am absolutely delighted you're here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. Well, before we get started, I would love it if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do here at Melrose. Absolutely. So my name is Emily Wacker. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, I also have a doctorate in human development and family therapy, and that was where I did my eating disorder research. Uh, so here at Melrose, I do mainly outpatient and group work. So, And primarily, my focus is teenagers, young adults, and their families. So I will do – I run our weekly support group for um, parents in support of others who are concerned about a loved one. Um, and then I also do some facilitation of what we call our family learning series, which is helping parents who have a newly diagnosed teen with an eating disorder. So, Emily, I remember being in graduate school, and so sometimes when people ask me to share stories about my doctorate degree, I start sweating. Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear um, stories about what was it like kind of moving through your doctorate, and what was your research on for your doctoral degree? Yeah, absolutely. So I knew that I really wanted to study feminism. I wanted to study eating disorders, but I was like, how do, how do I make that connect? I don't really, I, I, I want to find this missing link. And I was really interested in recovery. So people that were, had clinical disorders and had recovered, but there's a ton of really good research already out there. Um, and I was kind of just at the beginning stages of my dissertation um, that fun, that fun place right. where we're just swimming and for sure overwhelmed. Yes, right. We have reading all, all yeah, go ahead. <laughs> all these big ideas, right? <laughs> and then how do I actually put this into practice? Yep. And how do I make this meaningful for people? So, that's right. That's right. So I remember having a conversation. I was working at an outpatient setting with um, a colleague, and she was asking me about my research, as everyone does when you're going through this process, and. I said, you know, I'm struggling. Um, I'm, I'm trying to identify the population within eating disorders. And she said, um, because this was a center that was not specific to eating disorders. It was just a general outpatient clinic. And she said, you know, I've never had a woman come in for an assessment because we do that assessment in the first session. She said, I've never had someone come in doesn't share something related to their body or food, whether it's they're on a diet, whether it's they've had an eating disorder in the past. Um, and so it really made me start thinking about 
that there are all of these people that maybe don't meet that clinical level of disordered eating, but they're really, really struggling. And so they're presenting with depression or anxiety or these other things. And what what else might be going on with their relationship with food? What a wonderful question. I mean, what comes up for me is kind of this, um, uh, right, like this cultural aspect, right? I mean, I'm just thinking about personally, right? Mm -hmm. Like sitting with my girlfriends or, you know, listening to other women chat about maybe being dissatisfied with their body or worried that they ate, you know, one too many cookies, you know, potentially not meeting, you know, full criteria for an eating disorder, but that worry or dissatisfaction or concern about food or body that it sounds like that came up for you and you noticed that. It's such a part of our culture. It is just such a part of of how we particularly, I guess I can only speak to my experience as a woman, but it's how we can connect with each other is around our dissatisfaction about our body. And so I think women really struggle to know what what is this just unfortunately norm, normal discontent and when is this really becoming a problem? So this is an issue. We do see patients here at Melrose who do not meet the exact criteria for an eating disorder or a diagnosable eating disorder, yet we are able to give them resources or support or referrals to other community resources that could help manage um, some of those concerns around disordered eating. How do you believe the the female body is seen in Western culture? You know, one of the things I, I think about is working with teenagers and then having the lovely experience of being a teenager myself at <laughs> right, once, you right. know, which um, I heard a colleague once say that, Middle school is what we call a really bad idea. Um, (laughs) Never do I ever want to go back there. Um, And so I think about when, like, when you ask about, you know, the female um, body, and I think about this as women are, or girls are approaching puberty, they are supposed to gain a lot of fat. They Mm -hmm. are supposed to get curves. They are supposed to become shapely. Um, That is just naturally what their body does. And Western culture is telling us at the same time that actually your body should be smaller. And so there's this, that's where I think, you know, I really feel for teenagers, um, kind of trying to navigate your biology is doing one thing and then your culture is telling you another. And so I must not be worthy if my body is curvy or doing these things, but actually that's just what your body is supposed to do. That's right. So do you see the connection? I must not be worthy if I take up space. Mm -hmm. Oh, it is just so painful when we acknowledge that whether intentionally or not, those are often the messages that our our teenagers receive. Absolutely. Literally, their body is starting to take up more space because that's what it's supposed to do. That's the biology, Mm -hmm. right? That is the biology. Why are so many young women experiencing a lack of healthy, positive relationships? There's a lot of reasons. I mean, I think we absolutely have to name that COVID has significantly impacted this in the past two years. Um, Being an adult living through COVID was challenging. I cannot imagine what it was like being a teenager or a young adult. Um, So they were just more isolated um, and forming those healthy relationships, I think, was harder. Um, 
I also think what we were talking about before where particularly for women, um, there is this language around just talking about their bodies and talking about dieting and just connecting with each other around that. And so I think that that can really get in the way of forming relationships. You know, it's really important, especially in the teenage years, that you're forming relationships and you're figuring, you're navigating that. And if you're, during that time, most of your relationships are spent kind of connecting around body image or eating disorders or food or things like that, it's really getting in the way of you forming kind of healthy relationships. So that does potentially contribute to maybe some of those topics that you talk about in relationship. Can that contribute to disordered eating? Absolutely. Yes. Not having, I mean, I think we know that um, there's, there's two sides of it, that Isolation and not having a strong support system is a huge risk factor for disordered eating. And that's why I was really interested in looking at it in a protective way of what do we do? How do we make sure that people have safe and supportive people in their lives? Um, because then when there's it maybe when they're navigating like, oh, I want to go on a diet or my friends are talking about this and it doesn't I don't really these aren't really my values. At least they have a supportive person in their life that they can talk that that through with. So let's maybe talk about that idea of protective factors. So feminist protective factors. What does that mean? One way that can be helpful to think about it is we have these two lenses. So we have the social relational sphere and we have the social political sphere. And I'm sure people are like, what what does that mean? That's right. right. I'm already lost and sweating. <laughs> and in the back of the class, Emily, come on. Yep. You're having a <laughs> That's fla- right. flashbacks. To, That's right. That's right. To your doctorate. Um, so you have, it's it's kind of like this funnel. So I started with feminist theory. And then underneath that, I'm looking at, we have this social relational component, and then we have the social political. And so on the social relational, that those protective factors are connection and support. And then on the social political, those are factors like empowerment, agency, and voice. So those are, from a feminist perspective, the idea is that when you have those, that helps you to be less likely to have issues in your life, Um, whether it's falling into an eating disorder or Otherwise, for sure. So let me get if if I just list them, the ones that I heard you name are mm-hmm. empowerment, connection, agency, and am I forgetting one? Voice. Voice. Okay. But and, the agency and voice can often go together. Okay. So. Wonderful. And so let's maybe break those down a little bit and talk about what almost like giving us some definitions or helping us understand what does empowerment mean and what does connectivity mean. Sure. Well, I'll start with connection because that one's a little bit easier to understand. So when we think about connection as a protective factor, it's not just about having people in your life, but it's about having relationships that are what we call, and I'll, I'll explain this, so mutually empathetic. So the person, they see you, they get you, they want to understand you. And then it's reciprocal. You want to understand them. So it's there's this depth of connection. Um, there isn't the judgment there. There's the like this person really sees me. They're attuned to me. They get me. So it's having that um, 
that deep kind of connection with someone. You bet. It, it feels like a bestie. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to have a bestie. Like, one of the protective factors. What? So my best friend is a protective factor? Oh, my God. I can't wait to call her. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. It, so all kidding aside, that connection provides a space, I think, to be heard and seen exactly. and validated. Oh, I get it. Yes. And so when I when I interviewed folks, I had them focus on, you know, two people in their life that they really felt connected to. And it was across the board, you know, it was a spouse or a parent or a sibling or a best friend. Uh, actually, interestingly, aunts came up a lot oh. for people. Oh. Um, and this was age range of 18 to 25 were the women that I was talking to. Absolutely. So, so that that connection becomes important mm-hmm. to protect us from, yeah, un- uncomfortable or potentially disordered um, interactions around food. And then, so connection is one. Empowerment, what what does that mean? Yeah, I think we, we're starting to hear this word more, empowerment, which yeah. is great. But then I think we're like, what, you know, what does that mean? Um, and it's really this sense of I have ownership over my life. Uh, I can make decisions um, when when something kind of knocks me down, like I can pull myself back up. So it's that sense of really not to use the definition in the name of it, but <laughs> right. it really is I have I have power in this world. Wow, absolutely. I love that of kind of believing that I can. Yes. Ah, I get that. And so we talked about connection, empowerment. Agency. Tell me. So, and actually agency and voice kind of go together. So I'll lump them as the same um, protective factor. But agency is really about um, make like being able to use your voice, make decisions, um, feel like you are actively participating in your life versus kind of being this passive recipient. Um, so it, it is similar to empowerment, but it does have a little bit of a different feel. The word that pops into my head as you talk about that is like trusting myself. Yes. Oh, yeah. So it's almost as we're talking through this, I'm almost thinking about empowerment as like an external experience and then agency as an internal That's experience right. could be one way for to sure. look at it. So empowerment is I can go out and do those things and agency is I believe I can? Yes, I trust myself. I can cool. make decisions. I love that. And that is similar to voice. You said agency is similar to voice? Yes, because I think when you when you feel like you can make your own decisions and you can trust yourself, you use your voice. You utilize your voice. So voice is something that came out in the research. Why would it be important for feminist protective factors to be identified for a patient? Great question. So one one thing we haven't spoken as much about um, is what we call the eating disorder voice. So let's kind of explore that. that a little bit. I I'm love sure that. I'm sure you use this a Got lot. A in lot your of clinic. anecdotes. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Karen and her anecdotes. That's right. That's right. You go first. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the things is with the eating disorder voice is. If you think about that spectrum that we were talking about before with disordered eating in the middle and then clinical eating disorder on one side, normative discontent on the other. So what I found in the research is that 
as people spoke that were in more of that middle category, they started to speak about their eating disorder as if it was separate from them. It was like it was just this voice that was sort of telling them, oh, you should diet or, oh, you should do this. Um, but there, what I think is interesting, and you've probably experienced this as well, is when we're working with someone with a full-blown clinical eating disorder, they have an eating disorder voice, but there's so much overlap. Like you just – they can't – It's they'll just dig their heels in and say, I don't like desserts. That's right. Like, it is me. It is not my eating disorder. They're just, there's just no separation, right? And so I think what's really interesting and, and hopefully hopeful for people is that if you fall in that disordered eating kind of middle category is I think of it as more space. So there's more space between you and the eating disorder voice. And so if we can bring in these protective factors, we're then creating even more space. I absolutely could not agree more. And and I love the way you describe that. Another kind of analogy that we'll use a lot or, or descriptor is talking about the eating disorder voice as being almost like a volume control. Yes. And when they first come to therapy or maybe they are inpatient or they're they're just beginning treatment, it it's it's a it's screaming. Like the speakers are at a ten. It's really loud. Um, I had another guest describe the eating disorder as like a foghorn going off in your brain. Totally. Right. And so it's really loud. So it, it, the eating disorder becomes the only voice that I hear. And as I move further away from the eating disorder, you know, I often describe it as eating disorder thinking and then kind of good, you know, my own thinking. Can I separate the two? And the volume gets turned down over time. That's what we want in treatment. Absolutely. And so people who have more subclinical or disordered eating, they have more space between the, or the volume is down. Does that make sense? Yes, there would be multiple ways that you could, yeah, the volume is a little bit lower, there's more space. Often when I'm working with parents to really help them understand, because they'll say, you know, I've, I've had this wonderful child and all of a sudden she hates me and she's screaming at me and all I'm trying to do is get her to eat a meal. And so for more visual folks, we'll use um, circles. So I'll just say, you know, here's the circle of your child and here's the circle of your eating disorder. And right now they're completely overlapped. So you really just can't see your child. You just see the eating disorder. And so if we think about disordered eating, there's still some overlap between those circles, but there's not as much. That's right. That's right. I had a um, another guest describe it as, you know, the eating disorder used to live in the same house in my bedroom, slept in my bed, right? And then as I moved through treatment, it moved, you know, to a different room and then it moved outside and now it's down the street. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I still might be able to hear it per se, but, but it's separate from who I am. Mm-hmm. It's that space. Again, it's the creating of the space between you and the way that I talk about it a lot clinically and the way that participants talked about it when I was doing the research was that it was their genuine voice and then their eating disorder voice. So that's what they're trying to make the distinction between. I love that. The genuine voice. I I love that of of like my ability to kind of care for myself and and make those good decisions and nurture my body. That's my good genuine voice. Mm -hmm. There may be this disordered voice that says, you need to diet, you can only eat lettuce today. That's more of a disordered voice. Exactly. So let's maybe talk about um, the aspect of community involvement. It it looks like that seemed to help foster a sense of self-worth 
outside of appearance or weight. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so that was um, that was a protective factor. So I was using kind of those three connection, empowerment, and agency. And then I would notice other protective factors that would pop up, which was is so fun about research. Um, all of our research nerds can- I love that you said so fun. <laughs> that, I just really appreciate you, Emily. That is a really beautiful way to describe that. Thank you, Karen. I feel so seen. Oh, yay. So more questions to answer, right? Okay. So, and what did you find? Yeah. And so community, what I found um, as I was exploring this with people is that community involvement is actually interesting because it's both the social and it's the political. So socially, you're forming a community. um, And then politically, it's that involvement in that community and, and kind of making change. And so um, I guess I'll backtrack and just say what what I found with people is that if they were involved in some sort of community, it was protective. And we can we can get so community can mean so many things. I had someone who was really like, oh, I don't think so. And then she started talking about um, her softball team. And she was like, this is just this is my space. And I wow. go, you know, so even that is a community and it. She did that sport not to change her weight or shape, but because she genuinely enjoyed it. So that was a, a protective community that was outside of the eating disorder. And so, you know, so it can mean so many things. It could mean what we think of as our traditional community involvement, you know, political activism, or it can mean other things like, you know, forming supportive communities. And th- sort of the link is that when people are engaged in those communities, they're not engaged in the eating disorder. It's like building this community and this life that is outside of the eating disorder voice. Well, the eating disorder takes up brain space, right? Mm -hmm. And so if my brain space is focused on the softball team and connection and, you know, interaction, literally there isn't brain space for for the eating disorder to kind of take over. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. is really cool. The other piece that I really hear you talking about is community involvement. The word that popped into my head was a sense of belonging. Yes. Oh, like I fit. Yes, which is why it's also a social protective factor, too, because in social relationships, that sense of one of the reasons that we have those relationships is so that we can feel like we belong. That's a birthright. That's right. we We need to feel like we belong in order to really thrive. I love that. That that makes a lot of sense. If someone has an eating disorder and is listening to this podcast, what could they do to incorporate some of those feminist protective factors that we've been talking about? Well, I think the first the first thing to do would be kind of take take an assessment of the people in your life and just really think about um, you know, who is there a person middle of the night something happens, who would be my person? See if you can identify even just one or two people that would kind of be your, your safe people um, and start to build from there. And so I would say start there and and think about that support. Um, and then from there, I think everything else builds. Then you can start to like explore those relationships, build those connections. Um, and if you're concerned that you're struggling, you can 
open up and and share with that supportive person. Because what I think was also interesting is that when a really interesting finding was that when people disclosed that they were struggling to a support person, that support person was like, oh, I used to have an eating disorder or, oh, I used to have depression. Like it was really common that the person they opened up to actually had their own mental health struggles. And so I think it just built um, this vulnerability and this you, you just keep building from there. I love that. Well, literally, we say it at the beginning of every podcast that eating disorders kind of live and thrive in secrecy and shame. And when we have those honest conversations or we risk a little bit or we take a leap of faith, right, with this person that I defined as safe, we often can find healing there of like, oh, my gosh, I'm not alone. Or I can find safety in talking about some of these really challenging and scary topics. Mm-hmm. I love that. What has to happen in our culture for these feminist protective factors to be in place for all women or all females? Oh, man. How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Another (laughs) PhD project, right? Right. Right. I'll get right on that. (laughs) That's right. In your spare time. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Well, a couple things. I mean, I do think that we're more we're better able to embrace even just the word feminism and exploring it and and realizing what it is and what it isn't um i think that i don't know if this was kind of quite where the question was going but it was it was interesting that this research was done in 2015 and 2016 and there is actually so much that has happened even since then in terms of the Me Too movement and women like giving women space to talk about their experiences or just giving them space to talk and um, use their voices and there's been a lot of focus on women in leadership and kind of lifting them up and so I do think Things like that are what I see as um, continuing to kind of make changes where women feel like they belong in the world, that there's a place for them here. Literally this podcast. Yeah. Like us talking about it feels really important. Yeah. There's a space here. There's a space. We're taking up space. Mm -hmm. So important. What would be some practical things that parents or guardians might take away from our conversation today? Yeah, great question. Um, I run our support group at Melrose, and that is I, – I always say that at the beginning of group. I say, you guys, this is my favorite part of my job um, because those support people are so important. We cannot recover without them. Um, so I, I there's a lot of things. So one of the first things would be to start to maybe think about your loved one from that eating disorder voice versus – their genuine self. I think that's really helpful to start kind of being mindful of, am I talking to the eating disorder voice right now? Am I, is it my loved one? Um, And then I think within the relationship, kind of taking an assessment of does, is this a safe, have I done what I needed to do in this relationship to, for it to feel safe? So that would mean Um, a lot of validation. It would mean not judging. Um, It would mean your loved one comes to you. Don't try to fix it right away. 
a lot of my participants said that. Like, I just I just needed someone to just say this is really hard. Um, so that, I think, is what um, I really hope support people can take away from this. And I know that's so hard. Your loved one is struggling, and it's like, I have to do something. But just if, if I could give any unsolicited advice, I would say, be a consistent present in your loved one's presence in your loved one's life and don't try to fix it. Just let them know that you're going to be there. That feels so important mm-hmm. to identify. And we can appreciate maybe the worry or the panic or the fear that comes up knowing that my loved one is struggling, but also being assured that the power of listening and being present and supporting them, you know, sitting, just sitting and listening, that can be enough. That's enough. And that they're, those support people are deserving of taking care of themselves as well. I think that um, if I could offer some tangible things for support people to do is to also build their own community um, and think about, you know, so that's why with our support group that we run, um, we talk a lot about that. Is like we're building this community so that you have, like, you can't help your loved one from an empty cup, right? You need to fill up your cup and then give from the overflow. That's a really so. important point. Absolutely. So just community all around yeah. is what I'm hearing. Everywhere. That's right. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What do you think it takes to promote or teach or, or embody feminist protective factors? That is a beautiful question. Oh. Yeah. And I'm not just saying that to fill. It's just I've never been asked that before, but it's really um, that's a really beautiful Thank question. You. I really believe, it, you know, it's a question that's hard to put into words because I experience it on a day to day basis. That's you know, right. I just I, I live it. And so that's where I think it is. I think women sort of taking these ideas and owning it, like making decisions in their life, using their voice, speaking up um, when someone is talking down to them, feeling empowered in their life. So it's about, it's, I think you have to live it and you have to feel it. The other people in your life are going to feel the effects of that. <laughs> That's and right. then it's going to ripple out into the community, but it absolutely has to kind of start internally with you. For sure. And that's where the societal, I think it's always looking at it contextually, we have to continue to make sure that our society supports women in giving them space to speak up and listening to them and believing them. That's right. That's right. That it, it, it's a personal journey and through that personal journey that it extends outward through mm-hmm. community, through connection. That feels really important. And really, and knowing, and and I know we talk about these things like they're so easy to do, but this is why it's important to, you know, work with a therapist and keep reflecting on these things, but just knowing who you are. And I think that is where, when people can separate, this is my eating disorder voice and this is my genuine self, it's really cultivating that genuine self. It's And then it's bringing that genuine self out into the world. I love that. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute delight talking with you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun. It was. I I feel like we're chatting in the lunchroom Oh, yeah. Right. (laughs) That's it for today. Thanks for joining me. We've covered a lot, so I encourage you to let it settle 
and filter in. And as I tell my patients at the end of every session, take notice, pay attention, and we'll take it as it comes. I'll talk to you next time. Melrose Heals, a conversation about eating disorders, was made possible by generous donations to the Park Nicolette Foundation.